0: to tell their stories about what they've learned along the way, and share some of their wisdom with us. I'm so thrilled you can join us. Hey there, my wise friends, and welcome back to Collective Wisdom, the podcast that delves into the stories of remarkable individuals who use their unique gifts to make a meaningful impact on the world. Today's episode is a celebration of creativity and the transformative power of art. I'm joined this week by Sue Preston, an artist who creates abstract art that resonates with the depths of human emotion. In this episode, we explore why creativity is a lifeline for so many. It's not just about making art, it's about expressing our deepest thoughts and emotions and connecting with others on a profoundly human level. Creativity can be a source of solace, a means of communication, and even a pathway to healing. So I have a question for you. When was the last time you felt truly connected to your creative self? Our brains are wired not just to be doing things, but to be actively engaged in finding creative solutions. And perhaps one of the secrets to living a long and fulfilling life is when we find ways of tapping into that creative potential every single day. today we have an incredibly special guest, someone whose work truly embodies the concept of collective wisdom, artist Sue Preston. Sue is not just a very accomplished contemporary artist and teacher, she's a shining example of lifelong passion and creativity. Based in the picturesque wiltshire countryside sue specializes in abstract art that speaks directly to the soul she works in oil paint layering the surface and scraping or reworking a piece over time she has over the years exhibited widely and her work is in collections in europe usa and asia and proving that age is just a number she recently held a solo exhibition at the wonderful age of 80. On a personal note, Sue happens to be my mother-in-law. She first came into my life when I was just 16 years old, and she has been like a second mother to me ever since. We've always been fortunate enough to have her pieces with us on the walls of our various homes around the world, which are for me a reminder of our shared love for creativity, storytelling, and perhaps our roots and what it means to say home all of which makes her presence on this podcast particularly meaningful. So, Sue, thank you. Thank you. I know this is not your favourite thing, doing all this publicity stuff, but I am so grateful to you for coming along today to share a little bit of your wisdom with us. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> now, I'm really intrigued Um did you always know from an early age this instinct to make marks on canvas, to paint, to draw? Has it always well, been? It
1: was way, way before canvas and paint. It was um, my father um, used to draw. His father was a, an art teacher, and his his father did a, drawings of. It was usually horses. Mm horses in particular and I've got a couple of examples of lithographs that he made so but I never knew him because he died when my father was in his early teens I think what? but my father used to probably to keep me amused on wet days or something I don't know but would sit and draw and I would draw with him and um, he, he would talk about what he was doing and I would copy what he was doing. So that was very early on, and I must have been sort of eight or six or something—I don't know. And then I, a couple of times, won. F- it wasn't fifty pence; it was ten shillings, at the Liverpool Echo, for for um, a drawing I sent in, and they printed it in the Liverpool Echo. Wow! And uh, I don't know if I've still got it. My mother kept the clipping of my of my um, drawing in one case and it was of two figures i'd seen in a um, a graphic it wasn't a cartoon a graphic thing um strip um of two men fighting and uh, a native american and uh, some cowboy fighting and i drew that and that won a 10 shillings so i've, I've always done it i've always yeah. Drawn. yeah it was just something that i carried on doing and um i was i didn't really enjoy my girls grammar school very much but i did enjoy being in the art room and doing art Um unfortunately the most of what we did was sitting copying plants that plant illustrations you know so the yeah. fine pencil drawings very precise tinted with watercolor and you know it's a bit deadly when you do <laughs> when you did it did it for a level or something and uh and other things too but anyway um when I was in the sixth form, I was allowed or encouraged to go to Liverpool Art School on a Friday afternoon, really, to get me out and doing something else. And I loved that. Wow. And we did life drawing and nude model and everything, but the trouble was on a Friday afternoon, the students were at their most frivolous and I, I used to get really cross because they weren't concentrating on drawing a model. <laughs> <laughs> Which was I ironic to like that. The person that I was. <laughs> but I wanted to make use of my my time there because it was important to me. Yeah. And I would have loved to go to art school, but my mother very sensibly really, because that my, my parents had lived through the Great Depression in the thirties. Mm. And my father was out of work for a long time and and was looking for work and, and eventually became a police constable. Not because he had any great wish to police the community or whatever but um that was a job yeah yeah and so i didn't go to art school i became a teacher that i applied to teacher training college and um i went there and i was allowed to specialize at my own level in art and my art teacher whom i really really liked was her name was Alina Reed, and she oh. was the the you know the niece of Henry Moore. My teacher training college was in Hartford, which is not far from where Henry Moore lived. And she took us there, her art group, and it was just very meaningful to me. Everything about it was what I where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do.
0: Yeah, and so I would I, say that you know back that was in the sixties. It was very common, you know, especially if you're a woman, it was teaching, nursing, secretarial college. Those were the sort of
1: ways that you were directed almost. Well, the the very clever ones in in my girls' grammar school, the top three in the school perhaps went to Oxbridge. Mm -hmm. The next lot went to Red Bricks or whatever, because the new universities hadn't been built then really. And then after that, it was teacher training college, regardless of whether you were suitable Mm. there. And then it was nursing, and then it was office work. All of those things appeal to different people and demand a huge amount of expertise. And um, but it was it wasn't to do with that; it was to do with this sort of the grades that you got and what was appropriate for you. It was very strange, mm. but I'm sure it was you know similar in other situations as well.
0: But what I would say is that you know you managed to craft within the teaching to specialise in art mm. and you have through the years been the most
1: amazing teacher. Well it was only later on that I taught I taught drawing because when, when I was um, qualified as a teacher I was teaching in first of all infant school by sheer ineptness on my part. I must have filled in the wrong column, I'm very bad at filling in forms. <laughs> and I ended up in what was then the Inner London Education Authority teaching infants whom I had never met (laughs) Um, because my brother was six and a half years younger than me so I didn't know anything about infants really and um, so I had to learn how to to teach infants and then I was teaching juniors and then later on it was secondary and you know it's just everything really. When I didn't do that anymore I I had a, a, a private Drawing class,
0: yeah. But I think that thread of bringing together the art and the teaching, and mm. making it work for you—you you know, leaning back into that that mm. child who loved to draw and and yeah. you know what was in your in your heart really—is amazing. How that's how you've sort of pulled those threads together. Mm. And in many ways, I think as an infant school teacher, certainly, I mean, I've had a bit of experience teaching art with young kids. That's the best audience to
1: introduce. But you had young children, then you see, I'd never experienced young right. children. right. so this was before you'd had kids yeah. your, it was, yeah. like, it was yeah. a real culture shock. Um, and this was in my land in London, and it was they were very um strictly brought up. It wasn't a slum. you know, these were working class people who had very strong ways of bringing up children. and um it was sort of highly moral kind of right. Stuff. So it was lovely school it really was but I did it was a steep learning curve I tell you yeah, yeah. Uh, I can yeah.
0: so when did you so you said uh, it was it was mainly sort of post your own kids growing up that the or the drawing class came in when did you start really sort of leaning into your own kind of work? well
1: I went to night school golly where were we lived in Newbury. So um, my older child was five and my younger one was three. And I remember going to night school there at Drawing.
0: Mm,
1: mm. And uh, I I always did dip in and out of that until I actually decided when my children were older, my third child was then about eight or nine. So I was able to do other things Mm. um, that I would... Actually embark on a degree course of my own right in fine art called West Surrey College of Art and Design, and it was in Farnham and did you did you feel at that time you know this
0: was a real vocation now, this was a real sort of calling? yeah
1: yeah well I, rem- I remember my my interview at the college. I sat outside smoking myself silly. And then went in for the interview, and I I remember saying to the standard question, why do you want to do this? And I can remember saying, I've taught myself to draw, but there's something missing, and I don't know what it is, and I need to find out. Wow. And over the five years part-time course that I did, I did find out, but it took five years, you know, working trying different things. Um, And (laughs) to be honest, it wasn't any great thanks to most of the people, the staff at the college. It was when you had full-time artists coming in to talk to you about what they did, yeah, different kinds of art that they did. And that was really, really interesting, knowing how their lives were, how their minds worked, Mm. how they made the work. Uh, that that was how I learned from other people, and it was great going to lectures and things. My whole life, I have amassed a, a, a sort of library of art books, and I've always been to exhibitions, and since I was a teenager. So,
0: and it's interesting because I think that's you know that's why I wanted to make this episode. I think I think people find it fascinating to listen to people about their process and the craft and what makes them tick and how they how they get from an idea in their head to a creative expression yes yes
1: and then finding that what you do it's not the approval of some people of of other people because often it's not it's not and they don't like it but it's just kind of acknowledgement that that you're serious about what you do mm. You're not making it to make postcards to sell or something um, you might do that on the side I and mean, that's fine mm. but that's not the main purpose of it the main purpose of it, I don't know what the main purpose of it is, just to do it is to, to express yourself, yeah well just to do it, to make stuff yeah, yeah
0: so who would you say are, have been your influences, who are the artists that have inspired? I think
1: that somebody whose work I mean, there have been many people over the years and I've sort of... There are certain artists who are right up there in the canon whose work is just mind-blowing. Piero della Francesca, Velasquez, um, Rembrandt. Mm. But I think in terms of the the 1950s and everything, because, of course, I'm a child of the 40s and 50s, it was Prunella Clough, Mm. whose work um, was... Early work was very fixed in the sort of modernist thing. She did a lot of um, drawings and wonderful paintings of um, fishermen and people who worked in the industrial north and so on. Um, and then later on, her work became she never called herself an abstract painter, but she was always interested in in the shapes of the industrial north and also industrial processes and also plants and things, you know, I mean, everything. I learned a lot from her because she would take different elements of things and put them together so that they sort of worked within a rectangle. So the earlier work was making drawings of lorry driver in a cab, for instance. So you've got the rectangle window and the, the lorry driver with the cap and the rest of it. And you've got the wonderful shapes of the those cooling towers and and so on, and industrial architecture. Yeah, But later on, she put different elements together. And I found that's one of the most stimulating things, is to take two completely separate or disparate elements and try and make something of them together. And it's that sort of clash that gets the juices going.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so talking about that, I mean, a lot of your work is based on it's almost like um, a fragment, or it might be a piece of driftwood you've picked up on the beach, or you know, a piece that we have. We have an etching called Banks or Rose, which I remember from a little red red paper paper flower that you
1: picked up. It was it was, it was when rose. you had moved to Malaysia, and I went to KL, mm. to and I picked up that little rose in Chinatown in KL. I think it was. It was. Yeah. I remember it was in between the roots of a tree, and that thing. I think I. I must still have it. I wouldn't have thrown it away. Mm. But I made lots and lots of drawings and work about it. And at that time, I was doing. I was using dry point as a printmaker. I joined Oxford Printmakers, and I think that, no, they were etchings I made. And I got very interested in Goya's etchings, and there was a wonderful exhibition of Goya's etchings in in London. And uh, I really got into making images with that. And there were lots of other things as well, but that was a particular one I remember from KL.
0: (laughs) So is there a role that memory or capturing a moment in time plays in your work,
1: would you say? Sometimes afterwards, I I think about it and recognize things. But at the time, it's just, wow, what to do that. And and then the drawing, because it's usually a rectangular piece of paper, it's placing it in that without. Sometimes it's conscious, and I make lots of of rectangle shapes and try different arrangements in different ways. But um, quite often, it's just, it becomes more instinctive the more you try it the more you do if you make 20 small diagrams if you like yeah eventually you actually know where it should go without having to do all that
0: so you're so, almost making
1: 20 starts and then you're taking well, yes. them and seeing which direction it goes in knowing what elements are going to go into it or adjusting them as you go along and getting rid of some of them when i was teaching i used to get students to do that when they were stuck particularly to actually do a series of, I don't know, four, eight, 12, small plans, really not, well, you can call them thumbnails, but they're a bit more than that. Mm. Um, And things, it triggers a sort of process where you think, oh yes, and if I did that and now I'm going to do this, and then you do a a series of bigger ones and that kind of works. Yeah, It's a very good way of, of, Getting people—it's like putting oil into an engine. You know, it, mm. work a bit better
0: and letting go of this idea of getting to
1: a perfect finished ending. Oh, forget that. Forget <laughs> that. I mean, you're lucky. If it, you know, fortunately, when I was sewing, I was better. I, I didn't use this the methods for that, but because um, it wouldn't have worked. But it's it, for as long as you keep saying I, I can't do that because it might go wrong, you're never going to do anything. Mm-hmm. you'll be hemmed in by it you've got to keep going
0: so you were saying your process i mean you don't you don't paint every single day but there's part oh. of you it's probably observing going out for walks looking around at your own landscape
1: yes i did i did when i when we lived in um when the children were very young i used to sit and draw out of the window and we were we were in a very lovely wiltshire landscape. And I did lots of drawings, but somehow it didn't, I could never make it as good as the landscape itself. Mm. And in Wiltshire, you've got the, the chalk means that when you, the plough goes through and, and the different farm implements go through, you get these wonderful patterns in the chalk and, and they're very seductive pictorially. You see an awful lot of them. Mm. in in artwork, but it didn't didn't sort of do it for me. And I never felt happy with what I was doing. I was always happier really drawing a figure sitting in a chair or or something like that. I think that the figure ground relationship is important to me. So if I if I want to use elements from a landscape, I would actually deliberately make them with no no horizon line. Mm -hmm. So immediately you've got the upper sky and the lower the landscape, samey samey, but I, I would rather sort of use it as a ground and and then have other things going on in front of it, which eventually integrate with it. It's quite a hard thing to explain.
0: Taking out the rules of perspective
1: per se, that, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a that's it. Immediately puts you into you know, architectural drawing or um, landscape. A figure in a landscape, um, cars going along a road or whatever. So long time ago, I I actually, if you look at Suzanne, all those elements are in the landscape, but because of the way it's painted, the marks of the brush create the image rather than, like, if you like, filling in shapes that create a sense of distance. The distance is created by you looking beyond into where the brushes go. And it may be a bit fainter in the distance, but not always, you know. mm. um, It's a, a deliberate choice made to not use that kind of pictorial perspective.
0: And what role does colour play? Because the thing that resonates most with me when I see your work is you have this way of creating either harmony or dissonance, but it's mainly harmony. The, the colours are... Very intentional. I associate
1: them with you, so I just wonder how you how you see color in the world. Yeah, I remember the wonderful Mrs. Reed when I was at training college saying you have a predilection for blue, and she was quite right. <laughs> I did. I got so, so stuck on blue I couldn't do anything without a lot of blue. But I've, there are very few um, artworks that I've made that use green, and mm-hmm. I almost never use green out of a tube. I mix cobalt blue with lemon or something to make a green or whatever. But um, so green is not really a part of of what I do. It may come into it, but it's not a dominant part. There's a painter called Raoul de de Kaiser. It's K-E-Y-S-E-R. I think he was Belgian. He's dead now. But he used colour in a completely individual way. And I never use the same colours because I'm not him, you know. Mm, 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 But that that sort of way of looking made me think again about the way I use colour. There are some things that I just feel it there has to be cobalt blue and ultramarine, and that they're predominant. But I do use reds, and I was always particularly fond of Indian red, which is very. Dense, opaque color, earth color, and it's it's not like cadmium red, which is bright, mm. red, scarlet or scarlet um, or magenta, come to that. But I use all of them sometimes, but mainly it was um, earth earth reds. And you have this real, yeah, it's a it's a palette that you
0: yeah. kind of work within. So a yeah. fundamental part of making this work. Is sharing it with the world, and how 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 has that
1: been? I mean, you know, we've terrifying. had this amazing Absolutely. exhibition. Absolutely terrifying. That work was made over quite a long period of time. From I think the earliest was 2011, or even earlier. Um, in the main, they were much later, but there were some early early ones in that in that show. Mm, mm. Uh, so it's pretty amazing that the work, that the colours are still recognisable, the colours that I use, you know.
0: Well, there was a real continuity about it. It was, it, yeah. it
1: was a, a real... I find it difficult to see that because they're all very, you know, you feel quite subjective about it. I'm very glad that I didn't have to hang it. It was hung by the chap who runs the White Horse Bookshop, Angus, who did a, an outstanding job on them. I'm glad yeah. I didn't have to do it. Yeah, work. no,
0: as you said, it's a real skill and he did oh, a masterful and job. he made it
1: work really well.
0: Yeah, yeah. There was almost like a story being told as you sort of walk around the room, which is...
1: That's great. That's yeah. great, but that's his doing. I would have made a pig's ear of it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I would say I take my hat off to you because, you know, to be still hosting a solo show at this age, you know, still putting out your work. And you were talking about, you know, you saw, you you have your own Instagram account, and that yeah. that was
1: a challenge to get up and running. You know, oh, one of the things about lockdown was a killer for me. Um, I was just paralysed. And my good friends, there's a group of us that I sort of, when I'm writing in my notebook, I, I call the arty group, which they would hate because they're, <laughs> they're not arty people. <laughs> um, but just for brevity. And I'm the only painter. There's a, a bookbinder. There's a sculptor. There's... a a jeweler there's all kinds of creative people in this group and we meet for lunch every so often every couple of months or whatever Mm. um it was they they were saying you've got to get onto instagram so i did and in lockdown i was sort of paralyzed by by what i could see was everybody was posting stuff not these not this group of friends but everybody i knew was posting all this new work And I was not making new work. I'd made some drawings because I decided I was going to make a drawing every day. Yeah. It lasted seven days. Yeah.
0: Well, I think, you know, lockdown hit us all in so many different ways. A lot of people I know, the space I was in, everyone was, oh, I'm going to learn how to write. And they came and joined creative writing courses and online, you you know. But it was different people took that pause, that kind of, Yes. Great big stop. Which when have we ever had that in our in our lives before? No. And responded to it very differently. And you were saying, you know, in a way, a lot of the creative process isn't always about the the doing and the oh, I've got to just keep producing. Some of it happens in those moments of stillness.
1: Yes. Yes yeah I can't explain that about about what happens then or when it's going to happen, but I do think it it requires a, a, a lot of sort of brooding about things and then forgetting about them and yeah then, and then things happen, yeah, but the instagram thing was was paralyzing because I thought these people were producing new work all the time, and then at one point, a few weeks in, I realized that I'd seen some of these images before. Mm. And, it's i think it's to do with clicks how many clicks people get and i don't really understand it but people because it was important to them to have people keeping clicking on their work they were putting work that wasn't new in and i felt so much better about that because i thought i'm not the only one who's paralyzed you know no
0: no not at all
1: and i felt easier about it then
0: Sometimes we lose a sense of, you know, because what you were saying about your your arty group, what I love about that is it is that connection with other humans who love to create. Yeah. And that is the human to human connection that I think that's why we do all this stuff in the first place. And somehow for me, a little bit of that gets left behind with Instagram.
1: Yes, yes. Um, and of course, everybody who uses Instagram, has different aims from and, and wants different things from it um and that, and that's fine it's just a a forum really I don't know why i've got i've got i I know why I've got a lot of cute kitten things coming in because I like looking at them <laughs> but I also have these horrible dogs that kill people coming into it. I don't know how that happened so it's 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 just a mishmash really it includes things that you do want like um galleries exhibitions a friend's work not friends' work you know um yeah interesting stuff
0: and 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 it's also for me it's the random randomness of it it's i don't go in there with an intention or i might even start with an intention and before i know it i've lost three hours of my
1: life looking. and then you find there are such interesting sweaters on it yes and i always end up buying something i didn't need or 1800 pounds for a sweater or something i don't think that's me (laughs) yeah exactly so it's but it is it is a sort of um you can get hypnotised by the sheer volume of stuff. Yes, definitely. But it yeah. is a
0: great way to share your work with
1: with other people. And... Well, I found putting it on, notifying people about my exhibition, was mm-hmm. great because I had a lot of people that I know but who live in different places. Liking what I would put, and so that that is gives you a warm feeling. Not people yeah. who don't know, but people that you know who are is sort of like cheering you on.
0: And I was interested by what you're saying about you know being paralysed in lockdown. I think, I think that indicates to me that you need that connection with other people. You need the sort of the routines of getting out and about and seeing people. That is all part of your process.
1: I think so. Yes, I mean I, I'm not. I'm I am I'm quite sociable. I go to the cinema with friends and have meals out with them and so on, quite a lot. But um, at that time, I don't think I was. That's happened more recently. But I had a friend during lockdown who is much more sort of enterprising than me, and she said, "Look, let's we'll we'll be the, in this bubble, mm. and um, we cooked for each other twice a week at each other's houses." Yeah. So, that was two evenings a week spent sometimes watching film or whatever and, and eating novel food, you know, trying different things and so on. And that was, it helped quite a lot, but it wouldn't, yeah. wasn't my instigation. It was hers. She's much more sort of inventive and things like that than I am.
0: Well, I think the lockdown in particular, that's when this podcast started, that this was my creative lockdown yes, yes, project, yes. and it was almost, it stemmed from all those acts of kindness. It brought out, you know, we, we, we've we got to be careful not to forget how much people really leaned in to supporting each other, connecting with, with each other, looking out for one
1: another. It brought it's out... It's very easy to forget how important that is until yeah. somebody does it for you and you think, that made me feel really good. So I must remember that. Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah, and how even if you, it's the slightest, smallest gesture and often doesn't take much time, it can make a
1: huge difference in other people's lives. I think it, including people who may not have the same energy or um, group of friends, but, but to, to be inclusive is really really great for people they can always say no if they don't want to do it yeah, but um, if you yeah. actually include them in oh a cinema visit or um supper or drinks or something um is to give people that option yeah who may be shy or or not very sociable to give them the option is really important
0: yeah and realizing that sometimes you know, just extending that invitation, someone saying no, isn't a rejection. It's just, no. I'm just, yeah. I really am genuinely, I've got other things on, but not to say, oh, well, I'll never ask them keep again. Keep trying, keep yeah. trying, yeah. until they make it clear that you're a nuisance. Yeah. <laughs> But, but I think in a way what stemmed of you know from lockdown you, I'm sure your arty group are much more connected and and that yeah. sense of let's get let's get the dates in the diary let's make sure we don't just say oh next week we'll do it soon yeah. you know and those things keep coming up yeah. there's been this real sense of what matters is yeah human to human contact and and yeah. just yeah I think we we came to value it and it's so easy as we get back to normal to forget. You know that those gestures really do make a huge difference in people's lives. They do. They yeah. do. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I always ask my guests about music, and I know that music has played a huge role in your life growing up in Liverpool. Um, I think I'm right in saying you saw the Beatles before we knew who the
1: Beatles were, is that right? <laughs> no, I didn't. I went to see Cliff Richard. <laughs> We'll draw a veil over that yes but, that, but yes my my era was my yes they were from Liverpool and so was I but I used to I didn't used to go to the cavern but I had been to the cavern before it was the Beatles place right um, right it was, I do remember West Indian um, bands you know the drum the oil drum things that the uh, great it was because it was really was a, um, a cellar that you went down steps to it was um, yeah. and later it became the place where the Beatles played but I didn't actually know them but they did two of them went to school next door to me wow my grammar school was called Calder High School for Girls <laughs> and, their, and their school was the they were a sister brother school but there was this enormously high Berlin wall between the of course, of course and the boys from Quarry Bank High School because you have to remember the Beatles were first first of all called the Quarrymen that was because because John Lennon and Paul McCartney went to Quarry Bank High School wow. and the boys who may have included them well they, they were a couple of years older than me used to sit with their legs hanging over the wall and shout they weren't obscene things but they were jolly and and teasing things yeah. while we played tiki. tennis on the <laughs> tennis courts below <laughs> but, or, or some of us played tennis uh-huh. i was never very good at it but yeah um wow. so yes but that's all the beatles stories i've got really and then bob dylan we can't we can't really have an episode without I'm, I'm, I'm still yes i still love bob dylan i've got lots of his albums the music that I listen to now is, well, it's more limited and it's not as often. I used to play music a lot more than I do now, mm. but I, I, I do still have things I go back to. And sometimes it's Dylan, particularly. Um, my my father was very keen on Beethoven, so I had that rammed down my throat as a child. So I grew up hating Beethoven and, it, and I had to grow into it myself later on. Yeah. So I do like listening to the late quartet. I prefer chamber music really to orchestral music.
0: And um, do you do you listen to music while you paint?
1: No, I I do when I'm doing mechanical stuff like preparing canvases or whatever I I but I, I it's mostly Bach I listen to now the Goldberg variations or or some you know partitas and fugues and things.
0: And is there a is there a favorite piece
1: that you kind of I like Philip Glass as well. I like Philip Glass's music very much. I think it's got that sort of rhythmic feel to it, you know, that that is in Bach as well. Yeah, yeah. But mostly classical music, well, so-called classical music. You know, I don't like that sort of differentiation. But, but I listen to um, other things too. And I listen to the radio a lot.
0: And if you had to say a favourite piece, is there is there a favourite song or a or a favourite Bob Dylan song that...
1: Yes, it's curious. I love "You're Going to Make Me Lonesome When You Go." I mean, it's very lilting. Yeah, not one of the tormented ones. It's just got a, a light, a lightness of touch to it. But I love. I think I, he wrote it. I mean, he sings it, but I don't. I think he wrote that one. It's lovely. It's more folksy than a lot of them. Well, oh, I don't know, Schubert. Quintet, well, Schubert's quintet is to die for, or to die To. He did. Like he was dying when he wrote it, but uh, it was just yeah. amazing. I mean, I listened to that very loudly, so it fills the room. I'm lucky in that the house that I live in, I can play very, very loud music without anybody hearing it. Yeah, without disturbing any neighbors. Um, which is a great privilege, really, because most people live so that you've got people banging on the walls if you do if you do something like that. Yeah, but, yeah. Yes, I'd say that's probably what I might do.
0: And is there a piece of wisdom that you would like to add to my collection
1: something that sort of supported you along the way everybody who makes art of one kind or another or whatever in, in my experience as a teacher of many people gets stuck and becomes quite uh, despairing to extreme but but discouraged and i there's, there's a i think it's a buddhist saying that i have written on a piece of paper that i pin on the wall sometimes. It's it's chop wood carry water. So carry on doing the stuff that has to be done and something will happen. And if it doesn't, no matter, you know, but at least you're doing something. You're not lying there worrying about it, you know, feeling that you can't do it. Because yeah. that thing of not being able to do it is a killer. And one of the things that I remember being the most discouraging thing ever, right through my my life in making art is when somebody says you're inspiration or something and you think, I don't have any of that. What is it? And it's really intimidating. Mm. It's like like there's some sort of God figure saying, if you don't have inspiration, then you're rubbish. Yeah, Yeah. That is the really most depressing thing to say to anybody. I think really, you know, because you, you find it in unexpected places and you just have to let it happen.
0: You're an example of someone who finds it where you look for it, you know, on a walk on the beach, on a... Yes, you just
1: pick up the best Wednesday. stones or the best stones with silly faces on them or the best seaweed. And then when you find a better one, then you drop it and you move on. You know, so you come back with a with a, a trove of stuff. Mm. You can put it out and have a look at it and maybe take photos of it and make drawings and stuff.
0: And I think the gift you give to the world, you know, as with any artist who puts work out there, is you never know where it's going to land. I mean, your paintings are all over the world, bringing joy and happiness to anyone. I hope so. Well, (laughs) but that's the bit that you don't have
1: control over, but you have to be brave enough to put it out there in the first place. I have to say, that's gone. It's not, you know, okay, you think of it like your baby, but, you know, you better better not do that, really, because it's gone. Yeah. And it's not yours anymore. Yeah. Um, and you just hope if it does, I mean, sometimes it happens that people have bought work and you know they've died and you do wonder what happens to the work, whether <sighs> the niece or nephew or whatever that inherits it, puts it in the bin or... or whether they, but then it's not yours to worry about anymore.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, like when you go to St. Ives and you walk round Barbara Hepworth's garden.
1: Oh, goodness, in that lovely place, lovely place.
0: Yeah. You just think, well, this might never have been here. Had she not just done that? Chop wood, yeah. carry water,
1: keep going. Absolutely. And she had um, triplets, triplets. <laughs> How she did any work, because her lovely husband, Ben Nicholson, had buggered off else. <laughs> and she was left there with, three tri- with, with the triplets, bringing them yeah. up, and still making work and thinking about work and thinking about those amazing forms that you see her running her hands over like it's really a sort of sexy experience amazing yeah Yeah. Yeah. but yes he was off marrying somebody else
0: well perhaps that was her moment of you know often I think some of the best pieces come out of moments of desperation moments of there's got to be something else here for me. Um, that that for me is often what artistic expression is all about. Is is resigning yourself to the fact you don't have full control over everything
1: that happens to you in life. And just go for it, because if you don't, nothing's gonna happen. Yeah. Just stay in your head. And if you What good is
0: it there? Well, exactly.
1: exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, Sue. So- I'm gonna finish with just a, a huge thank you. I, I really do want to say just how much admiration I have for the fact that you are still putting it out there, still willing to to go through the the painful process of. Hosting a solo exhibition, you know, it's not an easy thing to do to, to show up like that. And it takes a lot of courage. So I'd like to say thank you for being here. It's been a joy. I've learned things about you that I, I thought I knew you completely. And it's amazing when you take the time to sit and just spend some time having these incredible conversations. All sorts of new things come out always. There's, there's always more is, is my motto. But I just wanted to say a heartfelt thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Kat.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Oh, what a lovely way to spend an hour just listening to stories. And it's amazing how even the people who are closest to you have facets and aspects of their life that unless you ask, you don't get to hear about. So maybe there's someone in your life that you could sit down over a cup of tea and, yeah, just ask them about some of those childhood experiences and where some of the things that have been a constant in their life, where they have come from. Fascinating stuff. So my thanks to Sue for being such a good sport. And if you would like to go and check out her work, and as as you heard, it would make her very happy to have you show up on Instagram and pay her a visit. You can find her account at Susan Preston 2633. That's at Susan Preston 2633. Or her website, which is www.susanpreston.com. And in a moment of serendipity, I pulled a card from my friend Rumi's beautiful card deck. And the prompt said, observe something ordinary until it starts to seem extraordinary. Perhaps you can spend today doing the same, noticing those extraordinary things in the seemingly mundane and ordinary, which is, I think, what all artists have honed their skill in doing. I promise you, the more you notice them, the more you look out for them, the more extraordinary things you'll see.